0: Most vividly and most clearly, Mark painting for us a picture of the absolute sovereignty of God as Jesus chooses his followers. We all have those childhood memories, you know, those really old memories that go way back to those days when we were just barely old enough to begin remembering things. And most of those memories are just little, like a little flash or just a little moment that might just be fuzzy in our minds in which we just have this briefest of memories of those young days of our life. Well, I have those two, You have those two, But I have this one childhood memory that is not just a little flash of a memory. It is a vivid, full memory. And it comes from the days when I was six years old in the first grade. And on this particular memory, I am standing on the line between home base or I'm home, home base, home plate and first base. And we're doing that little exercise that we all did way back in the ancient days when I was in the first grade, back in the 1970s, where the coach or the teacher or the PE teacher would choose the two most athletic kids in the class. And they would pick the team to play kickball. And so those guys were picking the team. And here I am standing on the first baseline. And of course, as the story goes, I'm the last one to be picked. Now, I remember that story vividly. I, I can tell you the weather on that day. It was overcasty and cold. I can tell you the name of those two kids, Ricky and Timmy. I can tell you the name of the teacher, Mr. Forsyth. And I can just tell you all those other kids that were picked and just the anxiety, you know I'm talking about, is every other kid is picked and then it comes down to me and then there's this fight between the other two kids about who was going to get me. Not that they both wanted me, but they were fighting over who would have to take me. And then Mr. Forsyth steps in and makes one of the teams take me. And then I hear this big audible gasp from the team that is awarded me to their team. And that memory is just there, you know, it's just... Almost like it happened a year ago. So that's one of those memories that will, I guess, probably last me till the end of my life. But that was a type of a choosing that stands out in my mind. Today's passage that we look at in Mark chapter 3 is another kind of choosing altogether. That one goes back some 46, 47 years ago. This one goes back about 2,000 years, and this doesn't take place on a playground. This one takes place on a mountainside. So we turn to Mark chapter 3 this morning, beginning from verse 13. And in this passage, there's going to be a choosing. In fact, this is a dual choosing that we'll see in the passage to us this morning. But before we read our passage, let's remind ourselves of the context that Mark is taking us through. In this this section, Mark is interested to wrestle with us about the question of not only who is this man, Jesus, but what explains this radically polar opposite reaction to him. What explains the fact that some people are conspiring, some Israelites are conspiring with Israel's enemy to illegally kill a fellow Israelite while others are flocking to him. We saw last week just the immensity of the crowd that's flocking to Jesus last week. And then there's the reaction of the the demons as they recognize who he is and Jesus commands them to silence. So this polar opposite of reactions. Mark's taking us through this. And the point that he's going to show us is that these two reactions are springing from two different hearts. One heart that is fundamentally opposed to the work of the Spirit. The next passage is going to take us there when we enter into that passage that we often think of as the unpardonable sin. We'll see when we look at that, that's not really what we think it is. But this passage known as the unpardonable sin, which has to do with those who are opposed in their heart to the work of the Spirit. Jesus is compared to one who's possessed of demons. And then we're going to see at the end of our passage today, even Jesus's family come and they believe that he's out of his mind. And so this is all speaking to us of some people who in their heart are vehemently opposed to the work of the Spirit in their heart and then others who aren't. And this is what explains the different reactions for us. So in our passage today, this is going to show us a different reaction to Jesus. This is the reaction to Jesus of those who are called and then those who are chosen as apostles before Him. So let's begin from uh, reading our passage from verse 13. I'll read down through verse 21 and then we'll begin taking it apart. So from verse 13, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So as we... Enter into this section, this passage from Mark chapter three this morning. Let's remind ourselves of sort of the larger tracking context, and that's the context of the strong man. This is sort of a theme of Mark's: is the return of the strong man. The strong man is going to be that parable that Jesus tells in the very next section, as he's explaining why he's he's being attacked. These people are saying that you must be possessed of demons to be casting out demons like you are. And so then Jesus tells that short parable about the strong man, how the strong man, in order for the strong man to be cast out, a stronger man has to come. And so Jesus is that stronger man. He is the rightful king. He is the rightful ruler. And a lesser strong man has come into his kingdom and taken over his kingdom and is ruling illegally in his kingdom. But the greater strong man has now come and the greater strong man is casting out the weaker strong man, the lesser strong man. And so in this passage, what we see here before us is that the strong man is now reclaiming his kingdom. He is reclaiming his kingdom. Look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. So Jesus here is beginning the process of reclaiming his kingdom. We'll see this in a number of ways through verses 13 and particularly verses 14. So we begin by seeing Jesus is going up on the mountain. And so when Jesus goes up on the mountain, Mark says he goes up on the mountain and he says it as though that's a mountain that that his readers would have known what mountain he's talking about because notice he doesn't name the mountain, neither to Matthew or Luke. So the mountain is unnamed, but Mark says he doesn't go up on a mountain. He says he goes up on the mountain as though this is something everyone would have known. You'd you'd have known, I guess, if you were one of Mark's original readers, what mountain he was talking about. It doesn't matter to us what mountain it is. But as he goes up on this mountain, that's our first clue that something very significant and something very important is about to happen. Because we have been trained by the scriptures to recognize that when the scene shifts to a mountain, Either divine revelation is about to take place or something very significant spiritually is about to take place. Mark has taught us this already, but in fact we're going to see this emphasized throughout the remainder of Mark's gospel is that when we see the scene shift to a mountain, we know that something very significant spiritually is happening. Just to kind of take a, a brief look ahead, chapter 6 and verse 46, he goes up on the mountain to pray. That's the night that the storm comes and he's going to walk on the water. Mark chapter 9 and verse 2, he goes up on to the high mountain. They go up on the mountain with James and Peter and John, and that's the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus is transfigured before them. Mark chapter 11 and verse 1, they go to the Mount of Olives uh, and he sends two of his disciples to the Mount of Olives. That's when he is entering into the city for the triumphal entry. Mount Mark chapter 13, verse 3. He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple and gives the Olivet Discourse. Chapter 14, verse 26. They go out to the Mount of Olives on the night of his arrest, and we could go on. But clearly, Mark is painting for us a picture of mountaintop, mountainside equals revelation, and spiritual significance. And Mark is not the only writer to do this. All the gospel writers do this. In fact, all of Scripture does this. Just a, a, a really brief overview here. Chapter 11, verse 29 of Deuteronomy. We're given the parable of the two mountains, the mountain of good, the mountain of evil. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, that's Abraham taking the son of promise, Isaac, up on the mountain to sacrifice him. First Kings chapter 18, that's the conflict, this grand conflict between good and evil. With Elijah there on Mount Carmel. One chapter later, 1 Kings chapter 19, that's uh, once again Elijah on the mountain when the son of God comes and meets with him. Exodus chapter 19 verse 3, that's the giving of the law for God's people on Mount Sinai. Later on, Moses will meet again with God on the mountain. Zechariah 14 and verse 4, that is the return of Christ when he is said to return onto a mountain. And that is just an, a very small sampling. I could literally fill up your entire handout with references from the scriptures about mountains and spiritual significance, mountains and revelation points from God. And this isn't by the way, this is not unique to Christianity. Other faiths also have a high view, no pun intended, a high view of mountaintops. And oftentimes other faiths will attach significance to mountaintops as well. So I don't want to I don't want to confuse you by leading you to believe that only Christianity and Judaism Think of mountaintops in this way. But it is to say this, when the Bible mentions a mountaintop, our attention should be focused on what's about to happen because that's a signal for us that something significant is about to happen. And what's about to happen in this passage is one of the most significant days of Jesus's entire life on earth. This is, without a doubt, one of the five most significant days of Jesus's life, if not one of the three or two most significant days of Jesus's life if we were to make a list of the most significant days of Jesus's earthly life, we would have to include, of course, his baptism. We would have to take a look at the, the day he was transfigured on the mountain. We would, of course, look to his arrest and crucifixion, his resurrection. But we would also have to look at this day before us. here. In fact, this would, I believe, put together with the day of his death, burial, and then together with the resurrection day, this would be the two most significant days of Jesus's life. This is a tremendously significant day. What we're witnessing on the side of this mountain is something that can really be seen as a crossroads in all of human history, a crossroads in the life of God's people. A new thing will be born on this mountainside today, something that continues to this day and something that's extraordinarily significant. The significance of this day can be seen on the fact that Jesus goes to the mountainside, but also it can be seen if we take a look at Luke's gospel and we see how Luke tells us that prior to this night, Jesus spent the entire night in prayer. One of only two occasions that Jesus is said to spend the whole night in prayer. Of course, the other would be Gethsemane and the night of the arrest. This being the other night in which we're told that not only did Jesus rise early to pray, but he spent the entire night in prayer. If we were to look at Luke's words in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, we, say that, uh, we read there that all night He continued in prayer. Now, we might be led to believe, from that English word continue, that Jesus prayed throughout the night. Maybe we've had a, a, a similar sort of experience. Maybe you, you've had some trouble sleeping, something's weighing heavily on your mind, you pray for a while... Then maybe you doze off and and wake up a little bit later and still on your mind, you pray some more, maybe you get up and get some water, get a cup of coffee or something like that and you pray some more and you think of that as praying throughout the night. This is not what Luke is saying. Luke uses a word here, translated continued, but it's a word that really has the significance. It has the meaning of enduring throughout the night. This is not a word that would be used to describe something that, you, that happens all night that's not this enduring sort of thing. For example, you would not use this word to describe how you might have left the light on all night and the light continued to burn all night. Or you wouldn't use this word to describe how your neighbor's dog barked continually through the night. Instead, this word would mean that not only did you do this all through the night, but you labored. Constantly without leaving it. So Jesus endured through the night in prayer. He earnestly, in an agony of prayer, so to speak, prayed continually all night in preparation for this day. So that tells us something else of the significance of this day. It is a a common understanding, we should say, among biblical scholars. That this event is also coupled together with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, Luke, I'm sorry, Mark doesn't narrate the Sermon on the Mount for us. But it is a safe assumption that this event on the side of the mountain is, is coupled together with the Sermon on the Mount. So that Jesus' choosing of his disciples and his choosing of the apostles together with that monumental teaching we know of as the Sermon on the Mount, all this was one day. So that Sermon on the Mount, we know of that as The most significant and the most important body of teaching that was ever given. The most significant and the most important sermon ever preached is the Sermon on the Mount, and this is taking place on this day. So we sort of get a feeling, a sense now of the weight of this day, of the importance of this day, but yet there is more. So we read here, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. So the first thing that we see is a separation, so to speak, a reduction in the number of people. We said last week just just how large and massive this crowd was and how intrusive was the crowd. They're pressing against Jesus, even to the point that it's almost dangerous. Jesus makes this way of escape with the boat just in case the crowd presses against him too much. So we talked about just the sheer number and how people were coming as far, from as far away as 120 miles away from the land of Edom to the south. And so we talked about the size of the people here. Jesus was down by the Sea of of Galilee here and he's going to now separate himself from that larger massive crowd. He's going to go up the hill and then we're going to see that he's going to call unto himself some of that larger crowd, and he's going to separate some of them off unto himself. So what this calls to mind for me is the the two-fold reduction number of Gideon's army. Remember that? There was this big army of, what was it, 30,000, and then it was reduced down, and then it was reduced down a second time to the 300. This, I think hearkens back to that reduction, that twofold reduction in number of Gideon's army and before he goes against the Midianites there. So this tells us of Jesus looking upon the crowd. All of this crowd has been drawn to Jesus for His healing. They are enamored with His healing powers, with His miraculous powers, and they've been drawn to Him from places so far away, but it's a massive number of people. So Jesus wants to separate himself from that larger body of people that's drawn to him for his healing powers. And he wants to draw unto himself those whom we read here, whom he desired. He called them up the mountain to himself. So when he called them up the mountain, when he called to them, this is a word that speaks to uh, not just inviting them to come, just not just Jesus giving this sort of invitation. You want to come on up the mountain with me? This is a word that's often translated summoned, it carries with it not just a a invitation, but it carries with it a distinct sense of authority. Mark will use this same word again in chapter fifteen and verse forty four to speak of what Pilate does for the centurion. He summoned the centurion, or Matthew will use this word in chapter eighteen and verse thirty two when he says that the master summoned to the servant. He summoned him to come here, and then he said, you wicked servant. So it's a word that carries with it a a distinct sense of of an authority summoning a subordinate unto himself. So he summoned them up unto himself, but it even is more distinctive than that. So Mark is going to use some, some words here, some language here, in which Mark is purposely trying to paint for us a picture of Jesus's exclusive sovereignty as he calls them unto himself. So the first thing that we see here is that he called to him. Now, that's the word apercomai, and it has this prefix, A-P-E-R, pair. We use that in order to describe something that separates out that which we do not want and focuses in on that which we do want. For example, we use it in the word aperture. So think about an aperture on a camera or an aperture on a telescope. And what does an aperture do? An aperture lets you look through and focus on what you want, while it also eliminates out from your view that which you don't want. And this word carries that distinct sense. Not only is it a calling to come to me, but it's a calling to separate from them. So it's a twofold word here. It's it's saying not just come to me and bring everybody else with you, but come to me while separating yourself from them it hearkens us back to Genesis chapter 3. The whole uh, command that's given to the man, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The same thing here, the same idea, is not just, not just the man, but this leaving and cleaving sort of thing. Jesus calls for them to leave the crowd and come unto himself. So that word is given to us in something that the Greek language calls the, the middle voice. Now the middle voice, you don't need to know uh, any, what this really means, but this is just to say this. The middle voice is what's used when the the actor of the verb is also the object of the verb. When the actor of the verb is also the object. So we use the same sort of thing in, in English and all other languages. But what it's saying to us is that Jesus is not just giving the command, but he's specific to say that I'm the receiver of the action of that. So it's like he's saying he himself called unto himself those whom he desired. He himself called unto himself those whom he desired. and that, that word, those whom he desired, that is what the Greek language calls an intensive pronoun. So literally we could translate that, those whom he himself desired for himself. All right, so let me put all that together and it's gonna sound really awkward and really clumsy for you, but I'm gonna translate it very literally and very, very woodenly. He himself called unto himself, or he himself summoned unto himself those who he himself desired for himself. Now that sounds incredibly bulky and awkward and cumbersome, but that's the language that Mark is using. He himself summoned unto himself those who he himself desired for himself. So the picture that Mark is trying to paint for us is a picture of Jesus as the sole actor here, as the sole one He desires for himself this people. He desires for himself these to be separated from the larger crowd. He's not telling the crowds to go away. He's not saying I'm done with you. He's not saying my healing is over. But what he's saying is I can't do what I came to do with this number of people. I came to teach. I came to preach. I can't do that. And so I'm going to call unto myself those (laughs) whom I desire for myself. I'm going to summon them unto myself, those who I desire to have for myself. This is most vividly and most clearly Mark painting for us a picture of the absolute sovereignty of God as Jesus chooses his followers. So this is not the choosing of the apostles yet. This is not the designation of the apostles. This is the designation of those who would be separate from the crowds, who are enthusiastic about Jesus. They're enamored with His healing powers. They're here to get healed. Everybody there is there to get healed. But this is separating from that crowd, those who are there only because they are drawn to Jesus' healing power. It's separating from those, those whom that Jesus would desire to be His followers. Those who would have a desire to be with Jesus and to be his follower and not just simply be healed by him. So it's this calling unto himself, this summoning unto himself. Notice that they all came because when the sheep hear the shepherd's voice, the sheep respond to the shepherd's voice. So this is a clear picture of the doctrine of God's choosing. I didn't put it there. I'm not twisting any words to make it appear like it's there. I'm simply showing you what Mark wrote. If you are under the impression that the doctrine of God's choosing is something that only shows up in Ephesians and Romans, then here we have it in Mark chapter 3. Clearly, Mark is saying to us that Jesus chose for Himself those whom He wanted to separate from the larger crowd to come to Him to be His followers. And again, we're not yet to the apostles. We're just simply to those who will be followers of Jesus who respond to his call, his sheep hear his voice, and they are set apart from the larger crowd. So this is the setting apart of the church. Now the church proper is born in Acts chapter 2, is it not? With the giving of the Spirit and the birth of the church. But in a real sense, we could trace the the beginning of the church to Mark chapter 3. Because this group that's being set apart is the group that will become the church in Acts chapter 2. This is a designating, a setting apart of those who are committed to be followers of Christ. This is, if we really wanted to trace the roots of the beginning of the church, we could trace it to Acts 2 and we could trace it beyond Acts 2 right here to Mark chapter 3. This is the sovereign call of God upon these. If this call did not exist, then the church would not exist.